Okay, so here we are for Boston Faith and Justice's Let's Talk Faith and Justice podcast. And we are starting with a new format for this episode in that um, Maeve and Ivy are here with me. And we're going to sort of have a little bit of a conversation before we get to the interview, which for this episode is with Bonnie Gatchell of Loved by Route One Ministries. And it was a great conversation with Bonnie. I'm really excited for everyone to hear that. But for now, Maeve, Ivy and I are just going to have a little have a little talk together as we do. And we thought we'd talk about the book club we've been doing and more specifically the book, Grace Can Lead Us Home and share a little bit about what we've been learning because I think I'm accurate in saying we've all found it to be a really profound book and has had an impact on our thinking at least and the way we're perceiving and looking around us, particularly at the unhoused community, but I think even beyond that. So we thought it would be a great thing to just share how that's forming us right now. So... Friends, what are your thoughts on Grace Can Lead Us Home? I think that it has been such a wonderful time reading this book. I've learned a lot. And I think that some of the lessons I've learned have been have gone farther than just looking at housing justice, as Elizabeth was just saying, and looking into just our metrics of worth and how we view other people. One of the things, the lessons that he, the author, brings up a lot is understanding our common humanity that we have with unhoused populations and also with each other. And just that is the the avenue that he goes through. And he talks about grace often in the title of the book is Grace Can Lead Us Home. And so that has been something that has really impacted me and understanding that, you know, we're all worthy and we are all children of God equally and we are all have this common humanity. So that has been a really um, powerful lesson that I have been reminded of as I have been reading through this book. Yeah. I definitely agree. As Maeve had mentioned, you know, I love how the author is able to speak very candidly about, um, you know, this population and how we are to, you know, build friendships and remain in community and connection with all of our brothers and sisters, regardless of, you know, their circumstances and their struggles. And it really has allowed me to have a different view um, or heart posture towards those that are struggling with homelessness. And I think the Christian call to housing justice even in, you know, if we see an individual as we're, you know, stopped in traffic and there's an individual that may be panhandling, just to to smile, you know, it doesn't take much, um, you know, it doesn't take any of our finances to, to smile back at somebody. And even if we can just start with that, um, you know, I think it can go a very long way in just how we treat one another. Um, and I, last night in particular, during our book club, we talked a lot about mental health and substance abuse as well. And I think there's just so many different intersectionalities um, about this topic and various you know, topics that we discuss um, as it relates to justice. And I just really appreciate um, the knowledge that we have learned in you know, in this community that we built as we've been discussing the book, um, but also just the different perspectives um, that we can look at different circumstances. Yeah, I think you're both hitting on like some of the big themes for me as well, like this idea of grace and how we extend it to one another and perceive ourselves and each other through it. And then um, Ivy, you're particularly talking about the um, the mental health chapter. And we also last night talked about the addiction chapter. So like 
those things for me as well, it, it helped give me a new lens for understanding things by first of all, knowledge. I think the book does a really good job of like, here's some facts and data and statistics. And then also here's some stories about, you know, this is the author is someone who's worked with um, an unhoused community in LA for, for a long time. So there's, there's anecdotal kind of stories. And then he always grounds it in scripture and in a particular call. So I just find that really powerful formula that he's using for lack of a better word that makes it sound dry, but it's not. Um, and so for me, this, this grace can lead us home. It's just, it like the buildup becomes more and more powerful for me for this idea of grace can lead us home. Like it's a play on a lot of different kind of concepts, but like his main idea is the housing first model. Right. And, and that, that is something that we as Christians should be um, buying into because it aligns with our theology, but also grace for us in the way we perceive ourselves and each other can also lead us, I think, a more spiritual home, right? To a way we're meant to be and meant to be living. So I feel like there's a lot going on there. But also, I've, you were mentioning the mental health chapter. And I think I said this last night at the book club too, but um, it helped both the mental health and addiction chapter really helped me um, change my perception of the way like I view those two things and the way they intersect with homelessness, in particular, when he talked about addiction and that um, the analogy to college students and that the homeless community drinks at the same rate as college students. And no one would say that college students go to college because they drink just because of that corollary. And similarly, he makes the argument, um, again, using data and stories that <clears throat> addiction doesn't often always precede homelessness. It's not necessarily the cause, but it is often an effect that is a coping mechanism. And that as humans, we can understand that. It doesn't mean that we don't want to help people um, come out of addiction and conquer that, but to understand that like, it's, it's not as simple as we want to make it. And I think that's one of the things I'm taking away from the book too, is just how much nuance there is and how easy it is to judge a book by its cover. And that that definitely doesn't do justice to the situation. As we look forward to finishing this book and um, wrapping up the book club, what are you guys thinking about the ways in which, I don't know, we're going to do things differently or see things differently or our hopes for our communities and our churches? Like the book talks a lot about that, right? Like how churches can change their posture, how we can change our posture. Um, and I don't know if there's anything specifically you guys are taking away as a as a tangible at this point or if we're still kind of in the processing mode. I definitely am in a processing mode, but I do feel as though um, there's a lot of different ways in which we can engage, whether it's, you know, by direct service or eat or by, you know, the education of our churches talking about, you know, what it's like for, you know, Jesus in the Bible to respond, um, to extend grace and what grace like Jesus is truly like. Um, and as we had mentioned last night, like, there's been so much grace that we have been given and how we are to truly operate in that, I think is something that we really need to focus on as, as a church and a, in a, as a community. Um, I also think there's different tangibles in terms of, you know, and this is a much deeper subject and topic um, than we have time for right now, but about the Narcan training, I think that's mm -hmm. something that, um, 
we as a community need to look into and not shun um, as it's likened to, you know, an individual who has diabetes receiving insulin um, as addiction is a disease um, that this should be something that is readily available for them as well. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Those are kind of the things that I was also thinking of saying. He gives a lot of great like immediate action steps that we can take, such as getting trained to administer Narcan, or he talks about needle swaps and how that's been used. But I think in general to just what Ivy was saying earlier about, you know, recognizing humanity and smiling at people instead of looking the other way, because it's an uncomfortable situation and the author doesn't ignore that reality. But he challenges us to sit in that uncomfortableness and to put ourselves out there and to recognize other people. And as the church, we can welcome people with open open arms and make our, our spaces more acceptable for all people from all walks of life to feel comfortable and to find a space where they can also pursue this greater calling that we all have and can find love and acceptance and can also find help. So I think that there he offers some immediate things that we can do and also just this really great perspective shift that he gives throughout the whole book. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I think, I think that perspective shift is like the biggest thing. I think the the practical things are important and we should all find ways to plug in. But I think also out of that perspective shift, a lot of practical things can flow um, once we've sort of integrated that into our own understanding and get sift down from the the processing that we're doing. So yeah, I'm so thankful. Um, Maeve is the one who brought this book to our attention and I've just been really thankful for it because I've learned so much. And it's, it's, again, it's the perspective shifting. There's a lot of knowledge to be had in the book, which I appreciate, but it also is like, yeah, this is the way you've maybe looked at it, but what if, what if we looked at it this way? Um, and he tackles a lot of hard things. I mean, homelessness is hard on its own, but just the whole practical chapter when he talked about, um, you know, that question that he always gets asked, should I give um, people who are asking for it money? And the way he processes that, it's not, you know, he takes you through a process and it's not like, okay, and then this is the answer. And I think that's really helpful because it's like, we have to keep engaging. And that's one of the things we're trying to do with our book clubs and, and just the having this specific theme of housing justice now is like, how can we engage to make a difference? And that engagement piece has to be preceded by this knowledge gathering and probably for most of us, a lot of perspective shifting and no matter what issue we're tackling. So um, that's definitely something that I've learned through this book and just through the different ways we've been engaging with this issue. So all that to say, it's a great book. Grace Can Lead Us Home. We recommend it generally. We're thankful for those of you who have been joining us in the book club. And we look forward to doing other book clubs in the fall. Stay tuned. And um, now we'll share with you my interview with Bonnie Gatchel of Loved by Route One Ministry. So I am here with Bonnie Gatchel, a friend and a colleague for a long time. I'm going to let her kind of introduce herself but I'm really excited to talk to you, Bonnie, and to have people learn more about you and what it is you do and consider ways we can, you know, engage to make a difference with your work. So Bonnie, oh, and I also want to just say, I like to say this about people that I'm connecting with. Bonnie served on the board of Boston Faith and Justice for several years. Um, she's been a longtime supporter. Um, I like to think we're longtime supporters of one another, and I'm just grateful that you're taking the time. So will you introduce yourself and um, talk a little bit about your ministry? Sure. Yeah, I agree. I hope you do feel supported by me. I'm very excited by the work of the Boston Faith and Justice Network and the way that you're changing hearts and minds for the kingdom and to serve those who are marginalized and vulnerable. Um, 
So yeah, I'm Bonnie Gassel, as Elizabeth said, and I am ordained in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and they have this unique niche where you can use your ordination kind of like a chaplain in a hospital or a military, and I use it to Route 1. So I don't serve in a local church, but I serve my ordination out through the work of Route 1. And Route 1 is an organization that I started along with Laurel Ann Kopp, who's another EPC person, in 2010. Um, We met for coffee on the North Shore. I had just graduated from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and the conversation turned to how do we reach women sexually exploited and trafficked in the United States. Mm-hmm. And the answer by Sarah Durfee Dunham was to make baskets and take it to strippers working on Christmas Eve. And that okay. Yep. I, I'm just going to pause you there. You might be going there, but I just want to, I'm assuming yep. you're going to maybe tell us like how that was the answer, because it's, it's not like for those of us outside, that wouldn't be like our first inclination. So I'm assuming there's like a foundational explanation as to why, which you were probably going to get at, but I just want to, I want to make sure that we, we understand that better because that's such an interesting response. And I think so outside the box. Yeah, good. Great. That's great. You're probably the first person to ask that that way. Um, For that particular conversation, that pretty much was the conversation. Laurel said, how do we reach women sexually exploited? In particular, Laurel was a high school teacher at the time. So she wanted to know how her high school kids could reach women sexually exploited and trafficked for like a one and done. Sarah said, make baskets and take it to strippers working on Christmas Eve. Um, And from there, I found strip clubs that were near my church at the time, which was in Danvers, Mass. Um, And I called up a strip club owner and said, could we bring baskets on Christmas Eve? And how many women do you have working there? And he had a few questions of like, what is go- what's going to go inside the baskets and why we wanted to do this. And um, to be honest with you, as soon as he asked that, I thought, oh my goodness, I need a why besides I love Jesus, right? Like, so, I mean, I just said, I hope this is appropriate for the Boston Faith and Justin Network podcast, but um, it sucks to work on Christmas Eve, regardless if you work at a library, Walmart, or a strip club. And so he just said, fine, it sounds fine. It sounds weird, but it sounds fine. <laughs> and so uh, we made the baskets. Um, I just chose items that I would want to receive for Christmas, like lip gloss, nail polish, earrings, a journal, and piled those up and delivered those on Christmas Eve. And the women we met met us with tears and um, wanted hugs and said that this is the only gift they would get that year. And I think so in that moment, there was a realization in me and others that what was happening in strip clubs wasn't what we like, what social media had told us, right? What movies had told us, what I had understood. Um, What I realized was there was an entire people group not being reached with the gospel. And so I think backing up to your, your question, then what I would find in the next well, I'm still finding, right, 13 years later, but over the next six months or so is some pretty incredible statistics that 90% of women who work in the sex industry have been sexually abused before they turn 18. 
um, and to kind of put in perspective, it's one out of three women in the United States who have been sexually abused before they turn 18. Uh, 70% of the women who work in the sex industry, may it be prostitution, strip clubs, uh, peep shows, are women who have aged out of the foster care system. Um, So they just don't have anywhere to go and they usually don't have a high school degree. Um, I find a big factor for women getting stuck in the sex industry, women being trafficked into the sex industry and staying there um, or not knowing how to get out is a lack of community. That seems to be a theme that comes up over and over again. So may it be a single parent home and the mom is doing or dad the best they can, like earnestly the best they can with what they have. But due to that, daughter doesn't have the community that she needs. They're not connected to a local church. Um, you know, whatever might be happening there, then there's, there's just a desire for community. There's a desire to be nurtured or to have more sustainability. So then all a perpetrator has to do is offer a little bit of goodness that's different to the victim's life, right? They don't even have to do grand gestures. So uh, when I think about Harmony Dust, who is a survivor of being trafficked in the strip clubs in Los Angeles and now runs the largest strip club ministry in the United States, he was lured by Burger King. Like he showed up and he bought our Burger King every week for like weeks. And it was just tiny, right? Like, what is that? $10 maybe? Um, and, but that was enough goodness for someone who had had goodness withheld from her that she was hooked, right? And then you want to keep that in your life. So there's a couple different things going on for women in strip clubs. I think. What people don't realize, what I didn't realize before doing this, is that women in strip clubs are oppressed. They are victimized. Um, they are spit on. They have beer thrown on them. Uh, 80% of women who work in the strip clubs report being raped by their managers or bouncers or clients. Um, and I think, so when you think about your workplace being raped by your boss, and then still having to show up. Um, the managers pin the women against each other, so they'll intentionally show favoritism to two or three women to try to motivate fights, because that way if they keep the tension, then you can keep people traumatized, keep the women trapped in the club. Um, drug dealers are allowed in the strip clubs, even though strip clubs are legal and drugs besides marijuana is illegal. I've seen uh, cocaine being sold right next to me, heroin being sold in the dressing room. Um, and so they have to pay a fee. The women have to pay to be there. Uh, so in Boston, the downtown clubs charge $75 a night just to walk through the front door. This is the women, the dancers, not up Um In other clubs, it's less, but basically then you don't have enough clients to make back that money. And now you're in debt. Uh, and you're in debt to some pretty violent people. So these are the, like, there's a lot more I can say about strip clubs to really bring home that they're not just places where bachelor parties happen and they're fun and the women want to be there. 
Um, but the number one reason that women leave sex industry does come back to community. It comes to one trusting relationship, encouraging them of a different way to live and or encouraging them of, um, yeah, a different way to live. And so for me, way back when, 13 years ago, I thought, why not me and why not other Christian women? So that's where we're at now. Um, yeah. Thank you. That's <clears throat> that's really helpful. And I appreciate you kind of breaking down this way we maybe because of the media or because of just not caring enough to look closely, we might have these perceptions of what strip clubs are, what the women in strip clubs think or do or want. And just bringing your experience and knowledge to bear to like take off those rose colored glasses. And some of those statistics are just really sobering. So I appreciate you sharing them, but that's just hard stuff. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit about maybe what you guys specifically do. I really also appreciate you calling attention to this idea of community. We were just talking about this. Um, we're doing a book club addressing homelessness and um, this relational poverty is something that keeps coming up there as well. I'm sure that's not surprising um, to you. Like just this idea of um, people who have a dearth of relationships of good trusting relationships in their lives are just so much more likely um, to fall through the cracks of our, our housing system um, and end up homeless. And so it's like one of those conundrums that's like, oh, okay, it's easier to address like not that it's easy to address, but like addiction is something we can look at and there are programs. But when we talk about this lack of community, that's harder, right? Because it's like this nebulous thing mm -hmm. we can't catch it. And so I know that is something that you like are specifically doing, right? You've referenced that. And I know from other conversations with you. So I guess this question is long and two part, um, just talking about generally, like, you know, here's what route one is doing um, and maybe what, you know, your plans for the future. Cause I know you have some neat um, plans coming up, but um, specifically like weaving in like this, this question of community and how you're, how you address that. Yeah. Route one um, is yeah. Connecting with pastors and churches in each area that we're in. Now we're also are connecting with pastors and churches up and down the East coast. Um, but prominently I've been targeting churches in Boston because we have, so we're in strip clubs now in Boston, Revere, Boston slash Revere, <laughs> Springfield and Worcester. And so I've been purposely targeting uh, churches in Boston, churches in Worcester, churches in Springfield, so that we can train them on what we call Trafficking 101, which is just the basics of trafficking. And it introduces church communities. It could be, I mean, we've done it at Wellesley College as well, and uh, Brandeis, so it can be outside church, the church arena, but predominantly, um, it's for the church and it's a one hour training session of these are the definitions of trafficking and exploitation. We talk you through a case study where you as small groups experience what it's like to be exploited and to be 14 years old and have to make some pretty hard decisions. And then, of course, then there's a time of debriefing after that. So for us, what that does is it introduces congregations to the issue. Um, to the reality of what women face in the strip club that help congregations move from concern to compassion. Um, and then it provides a platform, a basis for communities that are already in place around these strip clubs, right? So like, for example, 
the two biggest and oldest strip clubs in Boston are walking distance from Park Street Church, Renewal Church, uh, Tremont Temple, um, right? And so those communities already meet on a regular basis and could be equipped to serve and receive women exploited as they leave the sex industry. Um, they can also be equipped, going back to the alarming statistics for developed country, um, well, for any country, but um, that one out of three women have been sexually abused before they're 18. That's not a strip club statistic. Right. That's a CDC statistic. That's a um, Homeland Security statistic, right? That's nationwide. So if you think about your church and you take the total number of people that attend your church and divide that by half, and then divide that by three. That's the number of women, roughly, in your church currently who are vulnerable because they have been exploited by sexual abuse. So a lot of times pastors will ask me, how do we, how do we find exploited people? Well, they're already there. Mm-hmm. They're already in your congregation if you're willing to talk about these issues. And then that way develop healthier communities that can serve and receive vulnerable people. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so, that's so awesome. I wasn't even, I, I wasn't even thinking of that piece of it that you're talking about, like this, how you just said so powerful, like they're already in your congregation. So this way that you're trying to equip and resource and awaken congregations to like be that community that um, could welcome in um, women who've been exploited and are attempting to um, leave the sex industry. But then also this idea that like, we also within our churches have vulnerable people who are um, potentially are vulnerable to the exploitation because of um, what they've already been through that we might not be a, most likely not aware of, but at the same time can create communities that are much healthier in terms of helping with healing, acknowledgement, and all of those things. So I think that's so awesome that you're doing that and helping churches because I think that's something that's hard for churches, at least in my own experience, just interacting with church leadership. It's just not something that's necessarily on the radar. So I very much appreciate that that's like your Mm -hmm. call and what you're doing. And I know you're so well equipped to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So are there ways, like what, what are good ways for people? Like this is again, one of my twofold long questions, but I'd love to talk about ways people can engage with fruit one um, Mm -hmm. and support what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then, um, also just generally, like, are there ways that people can, I don't know, be more aware, be more um, present to this issue in day to day? Yep. That's great. I think those are great questions. So focus on route one. Um, uh, one is, can you invite us to your church to do a trafficking 101? Um, I think it's a great opportunity for the reasons that I just mentioned, right? Yeah. Um, it's not scary. It's not alarming. It's pretty low bar. Um, what I've shifted to doing, which I don't know why I didn't think of this sooner, but I didn't think about it until after the pandemic, um, is we just do it immediately after church. So, uh, like, you, everyone goes to church. Uh, the pastor or whomever it is that makes the regular announcements announces a few weeks leading and then asks everyone just to who's interested to stay. Um, what works well is if there is some kind of food, um, you know, as an incentive, but yeah. churches vary on what they've done there as well. Um, some churches have done pizza, a church in Philadelphia did pretzels, hot pretzels with the cheese. 
Um, some places have done like hot dogs and hamburgers. Uh, and I mean, a, a church in an inner city of DC, they just said, grab your coffee. We're doing this now. So, you know, it's just like, but it's easy. It's one hour. The congregation's already there. Um, and it's just an entry point. And what it does for Route One directly is connects us to possible volunteers for each of these areas and or one-offs like our Christmas Eve initiative, which still happens. Um, and it also indirectly connects people who can be praying for us, right? Because mm-hmm. maybe people who come sign up for our newsletter and it continues their education, right? If we were to do a book club and that's put in our newsletter, now the people who came are going to know about that. Um, yeah. So that's one way. Invite us to do a Trafficking 101. Uh, another way is donation. We run on donations. It takes funding to allow the quality staff to uh, lead and direct the volunteers who go into the strip clubs. Um, we we rely a lot on volunteers. So if you are a woman who is 21 years of age or older and you would like to come out and volunteer with us, we have lots of training. I'm very particular about the training. Um, we just ask people to come three times a month um, into the strip clubs. Nobody ever goes alone. We go with teams, and I can tell you more about that. I think I don't know if this is gonna if you're gonna put up my like info with this, but it's just Bonnie at lovebyroot1.org, and all of that is spelled out. Um, we also have a website. It's lovebyroot1.org, so you can find all the contact information there. So directly with Route 1, that would be it. Can you invite us into your church to share what's happening with trafficking as a response, as a way to bear witness and grieve with those who grieve? Uh, Can you make a donation? And would you want to volunteer with us? Uh, Then to the broader trafficking. There is a conference coming up. We've partnered with the Polaris Project. So on June, Monday, June 13th in Quincy at Best Western We're going to do a a day conference on the the overlap between substance abuse and trafficking. So it'll be us, the Boston Health Commission is going to be there, um, and Amira and a couple other people. Uh, So that, again, I guess is on our website if you want to find that information. Uh, In your churches, can you print just on a a normal print printer site? sheet of paper, um, hey, if you've exchanged sex for rent, if you've been manipulated into performing sex acts, sex acts or needed money for sex or have been paid for sex, just think of three three specific ways that people get trapped. Don't go more than that. Then you could be a victim of trafficking. Call this number and you can put the trafficking hotline number, laminate that thing and put it on the bathroom stall, because in the bathroom is going to be where the perpetrator can't follow or doesn't follow, right? Um, Can you invite a survivor to your church to share their story? Again, if you want those names, you can email me and I can get those to you. Um, I think that if you, as men, men's group, if you could start a book club, this can be temporary, right? Um, where together you read a memoir of a woman who's been exploited in the sex industry. And it can be a women and men's group. That would be fine. I think 
I mentioned men because part of making the change for women less of a to reduce exploitation is to change how we see women and how we appreciate women, right? So shifting mindsets within our churches um, from patriarchy to a more egalitarian understanding. So I think those are those are some ways. That's so helpful. I really appreciate it. And we will share um, Root One's information too, just so people can get there really quickly, but lovedbyrootone.org, pretty easy to remember. So for people just listening who don't want to go to the info, um, they can get there. But that's that's awesome. There are so many different ways to plug in with what you're doing. And I think that's so helpful for people who have different comfort levels or different abilities to commit. Um, but I just want to emphasize that one about inviting you into their churches, um, because I think Imagine if all of the people of God were equipped um, to yeah, yeah. understand trafficking, to to welcome yeah. um, survivors, and this kind of thing like that. How amazing and world altering that would be! So, just want to highlight that and thank you for sharing that stuff. But then also, I just really appreciate you naming some of these other very specific ways that we, just as individuals operating, can just be more aware and be a, a safer space and create this room. Um, yeah. So I just thank you for that. I just really appreciate your knowledge and your willingness to share that because this is again, an issue that I think a lot of us are peripherally aware of, but don't necessarily have specifics on like, how should we engage? How should we react? Mm -hmm. Like what are, what are the issues? Um, anyway, so I just, I just want to name that I very much appreciate you here, but also just the work you're doing and the ways in which you're changing the world because you're awesome. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you feel like we should touch on? Oh, man. <laughs> That's a really big question. Um, I mean, I guess I would say that if you're listening to this podcast and you're a victim of sexual abuse and you feel like you've hit a wall, you've already talked to people about it, or you just don't feel safe, there's no one that you can talk to about it. I hope that you will still find our information and shoot me an email. Um, I would love to talk with you. As an ordained minister, I'm held to some confidentiality, um, and I'm good at understanding um, what you might be facing, right, and the grief you might be facing. But what I want is for you not to feel alone, right? And to have the opportunity to release that shame, the unnecessary shame, but that comes with being a victim, I think. Um, if you are leading a church that has only men in authority and power, I maybe just reconsider that. Um, mm. Most of the churches that have come down with a sex scandal are churches that only had, had only men in leadership. And it's not if we had all women in leadership, there would be other issues, right? So it's not that there that women are whatever than men. It is the, the lack of diversity and voice and accountability and what it says to your congregation about how you view women. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for naming that. Again, that's not yeah, that's not something that I would have thought to name here, but it's yeah, I really appreciate you naming it and also just recognizing that. In light of the statistics you share that people listening might in fact be um, currently or former victims and creating a safe space. I just, again, want to really appreciate who you are and your openness and experience and ability to be a safe space. So thank you for that. 
Um, and thank you again for taking the time. And I hope that people will reach out and connect. I feel like I've learned so much, even in just our little 20, 25 minute conversation. So I hope that our community is learning too. And that we can continue continue to engage this issue because it's not like, oh, okay, we learned this and we're moving on. This is obviously an ongoing struggle, um, an ongoing injustice that we want to be continually aware of and find ways to engage to make a difference. So thank Great. you very much, Bonnie. Oh, thank you. This was so fun.